Now, what's the Hebrew word for girls? Uh, banot. Banot? Yeah, banot. Banot. I like yeah. that. Banot. Okay. Sounds a little yeah. Italian. Um, oh, you want to know how you say dick? Yeah. Yeah. Schmeckle. Oh, I knew Schmeckle. I knew Isn't Schmeckle. Isn't that a good Isn't one? Schmeckle? Schmeckle's Yiddish, though, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, you want to know how you say asshole? Uh, yeah, no, Colwyn. God damn it, I was going to say Breeze Bell. Yes, fuck you! Taking a calm approach. Mm. <laughs> For our listeners, by the way, okay, I'm going to pull back the curtain because that's this is fun. I like doing that. Liz has been veiled by a curtain this entire time, so I'm mm. excited for this. Burka, yes. Um, Brace just tried recording a hello, welcome, and it was the craziest thing. It was so crazy that we couldn't hear it over the like video recording thing that we're using right now in yeah. our little video chat. I, I did scream it. Anyway. So I said, I'm taking the calm approach. Yin yang, baby. Well, to pull the curtain back further, I said, ladies and gentlemen, the moneylenders are in the temple, and here we fucking are. Oh my I God. embrace. We have a special guest with us today. Say your fucking name. Noah Colwyn. Noah Colwyn, you might know as the host, the sole host, because Brendan James, unfortunately, <laughs> has passed away from Gulf War Syndrome, of Blowback Podcast, season two on the way. I don't know if you guys have mentioned that yet. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, no, we right. have, we have. This is good. Keep the plug He shared with me some of the research, and I have actually developed uh, Blowback 2, which is my podcast, which is just taking me the stuff that, that, that Noah sends me via text message sometime, and sort of extrapolating and putting my own spin on it, uh, and, uh, and rushing it out to market on, uh, on a podcast player I'm developing with Spotify. All right. Well, I'm Liz. We are, I'm of Brent. course, joined there we by go. our producer, Young Chomsky, and this is Trunon for the week. Hello, everyone. Hello. We have... Fuck. I'm so excited. So, okay. We brought Noah in for a little backup here, a little plan. We couldn't we couldn't have this party without him. We have a very no. special guest um, in what is part one of uh, a wide-ranging interview. Um, and I think we should give a little bit of context for our listeners, particularly our Zoomer listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very sensitive to the Zoomer needs. Uh, Brace, you wanna you wanna give us a little intro? I'm passing this off to Noah because he's smarter than sure. me. Sure. <laughs> uh, well, I accept the compliment, Brace, and uh, affirm the sentiment. <laughs> yes, I'm sub sub moronic, and you're just sub moronic. So yeah, I'll take yeah. that. I mean, look for Jews, it's not so bad. Oh not my god. Um, so um, Norman Finkelstein is probably like like. To the extent that we have debates today about things like deplatforming, about things like cancel mm-hmm. culture, about things like, you know, stripping intellectuals of their ability to put forward, you know, perfectly reasonable ideas in the public sphere. Norman Finkelstein was one of the people from whom that right was, you know, most violently ripped, along with yeah. Steve Salacia and other uh you know, like academics who talk about Israel Palestine. Norman Finkelstein was persecuted by People ranging from Alan Dershowitz 
to, uh, I mean, practically you name it, any major yeah, universal, uh, like, 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 like universal condemnation as an anti-Semite and as a Holocaust denier. And this was for uh, simply offering a very radical critique of the way that the memory of the Holocaust was used in favor of the uh, Israeli government, uh, of, in favor of Israeli government policy. Mm-hmm. And Norman Finkelstein is not an especially radical thinker. There's a documentary about Finkelstein that I, I encourage you all to watch where the, you know, acclaimed, you know, sort of internationally respected uh, Holocaust historian Raoul Hilberg describes Norman as somebody who, you know, although his actions are in, in language may be hyperbolic, his conclusions are pretty moderate. And as a result of his deplatforming, um, uh, after talking with Brace and Liz, we thought that it would be a really great opportunity to talk with him, not just about, you know, the nature of his, you know, scholarship uh, and the, you know, the way in which he was, you know, he lost his job and uh, was shunned from public life um, later in his life, but also about, you know, his origins and how he came to pursue the path of scholarship that he did, because, Quite frankly, he's been denied that right in a lot of different venues for a, quite a long time. Yeah, I also want to say, like, I mean, I don't, you know, we're not having a big discussion on cancel culture. And I think that um, that almost feels like like a petty version of what happened to him or something. Like the way people wield, uh, um, I don't know, like the way people wield that debate and, and, you know, whatever they want to call cancel culture, like what happened to Norm and what was like, I, you know, I think what will become evident or at least was evident to me in this interview, like what has been taken from us as he's been basically completely ostracized and exiled from like the entire academic, intellectual and political world in America um, is like a much is like much much bigger crime than um, than I think that that a lot of people maybe realize when they talk about that whether they when they use that term you know um, something that struck me that I just because we should just roll into the interview and I just want to say like yeah. this this interview is a bit different for us um, it's like really just like letting him go. And I think that he has got a lot to say and that we have a lot to listen to in particular. Um, But there was something that when I, you know, when I was sitting here listening to him speak, I was, I was reminded of something that, that um, James Baldwin really remarked on, which is that he really felt that generations had a lot to learn from each other. And this is something that I think, you know, it's very um, trendy to rail against boomers and rail against, you know, and boomers railed against their, you know, their parents' generation. And, and you know, our kids will rail against our generation, et cetera. Um, but I would urge people to kind of maybe stop for a second, take a pause, because we have a lot to learn from each other. And yeah. um we definitely have a lot to learn from Norman Finkelstein. Yeah, I mean, if if I may, real quick, like you know, Norman Finkelstein, I, I know a little bit about his life. I've read some of his books. You know, I've watched the documentary on him. I've listened to a lot of interviews with him. And to me, a, a real tragedy is that, like, yeah, a, a wide variety of of forces, you know, from across the political spectrum, basically colluded and didn't even need to collude. They were all just part of sort of the same yeah. mindset. Uh, you know, came together to to essentially try to erase this man from public life and and to ruin his life. Literal and what witch we, hunt, lots of collusion. 
absolutely. And and you know, and, and talking to him because yeah, I, I before this interview, like I you know, I I know a bit about uh, you know uh, Mr. Finkelstein's life or Professor Finkelstein. I don't know what to call him. Norman Finkelstein's fucking life. He's like, he's a first name last night name guy. And and to me, part of the tragedy isn't just that like we that 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 that's more people were robbed essentially of 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 his intellectual ideas, but were robbed of the man as himself because because we do not have. I will say many of our, our so-called public intellectuals these days, especially people of my generation, are are are, are men and women of different caliber than this. Yeah. Um, and so, I I really encourage you. And it's sort of a long interview, and it's 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 the first of a, of, of of multiple ones. And uh, I really encourage you to listen to this and uh, and and take what this man says to heart. So, uh, Young Chomsky, roll Norman. Well, welcome to this week's very special episode of True and On. And uh, you know, I was going to say that this guest needs no introduction, despite the fact that in the preceding segment we did just introduce him, and I am also going to ask him to introduce himself. Uh, but we have us uh, with us today, Norman Finkelstein. Norman, how you doing? And uh, you know, just so I don't have to interrupt you, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, at 67, I have a lot of background, and it's hard to decide what is and isn't important for your viewers and listeners because I don't know them. Uh, I'll try to put it in as I'll try to put it in a nutshell. Um, my parents passed through the Nazi Holocaust. Uh, they were both in. They're both from Poland, from Warsaw. They were both in the Warsaw Ghetto from 1939 uh, until the repression of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in 1943. There were about 20 or 30,000 survivors of the ghetto, and they were all deported <clears throat> to Majdanek concentration camp. My parents were among the deportees. My father was apparently... A, I never talked about it with him, but my mother told me at some point that my father had been in eight concentration camps, and he ended up in Auschwitz, and he was in the Auschwitz death march. My mother was in several slave labor camps. She was liberated by the Russians. My mother was, my father was liberated by the Americans. They then ended up in what was called the DP camp, displaced people camp in Linz, Austria, uh, and eventually they made their way to the United States. I grew up um, in a very modest home. My father was a factory worker. Eventually he became a foreman. My mother raised the three kids because she was a typical doting Jewish mother to begin with, but secondly, uh, she didn't trust anyone with the kids. And thirdly, we had no living relatives on my mother and father's side, both of them. On both the sides, every single member of the family was exterminated. I had no grandparents, I had no aunts, I had no uncles, I had no cousins. Everybody was dead, was uh, exterminated. 
so it wasn't as if a family member can be called in to take care of us. Uh, it was just, as my late mother used to say, just five people in the world, uh, her, my father, and my two siblings and myself. Uh, I grew up in a, what you would call a lower middle class neighborhood. Eventually, we made it into the lower middle class. We grew up uh, originally before I was born, because I was the last child. Uh, we, were, we, were, we grew up in real poverty, but eventually we made it into what you would call the lower middle class. And it happened back then, um, schools were very good. Public schools were excellent. If I were to tell you who attended my high school, you would probably not even believe it. My high school, Bernie Sanders attended my high school. Charles Schumer attended my high school. The current Senate, now the Senate Majority Leader. Yeah. Uh, most powerful Jew in the history of the United States, uh, Charles Schumer. Norm Coleman, the senator, went to my high school. At some point, now remember, I'm talking about a public high school, a regular public high school. Um, Judge Judy went to my high school. Of course. <laughs> What's her name? Will you still love me tomorrow? Um, the um, Carol King. Carol King went to my high school. Uh, Stanley Kaplan, you know the Kaplan preparation courses? Yeah, oh, sure. I don't, but I, I'm sure they exist. <laughs> Stanley Kaplan went to my high school. Great not writer. one, not two, not three, not four, five. Five Nobel laureates went to my high school. Five. Uh, Carl Becker, the economist. Whoa. Alan yeah. Robert Solo, the economist. It was a... Uh, it was a real testament. Whenever you hear this talk about, oh, we need charter schools and, <laughs> oh, we need competition with the public schools, that's just a lot of crap. Yeah. If you want those schools to succeed, those schools can succeed. We were not rich. You know, I remember I was, I would say I was not friends, but I was acquainted with uh, Charles Schumer's sister, friend. Fran was my, Fran was brilliant, like Charles. Chuck Schumer is a brilliant mm -hmm. guy. He's a total crook, depraved crook. Of course. He's a very smart guy, no two ways about it. And his sister was brilliant also. And his sister, Fran, was the girlfriend of my best friend, Mark Cohn. So I knew her through him. When they went out, I would join them often. <clears throat> The point I was going to make was I have a very vivid recollection of these people. You know, Fran would come to school in very drab clothes. Her father was an exterminator. Chuck Schumer, his father, was an yeah. exterminator. You know, uh, Bernie Sanders, his father was a door-to-door -door salesman. These are very modest background, but the schools worked. They functioned. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you were able, if you were that ambitious, and uh, lower middle class Jews were extremely ambitious to the point of it being obnoxious, but <laughs> no, you have to acknowledge the good and the bad. The good was they realized their dreams. I could tell you, A, one, uh, 
Person one wanted to be this, person two wanted to be that, person three wanted to be this, that, that. I can name you everyone from my high school, you know, my crowd. Yeah. You know what? Everybody achieved what they wanted. One wanted to do film, one wanted to be a Broadway producer, one wanted to be an orchestra leader, and of course it's Jews, so the other seven wanted to be doctors. <laughs> they all achieved it. You know, it was it was a testament both to the opportunities of that era when the economy was thriving, the opportunities, but it was also a testament to the system worked for a lot of people. It really worked. You mm-hmm. get a first-class education in a public school paid for with taxpayer money, and you are able to compete on an equal footing with the best and the brightest being turned out by the private schools. Mm. One question, you know, I, I grew up in a not totally dissimilar uh, milieu a few generations down the line um, in the Newark, New Jersey area. And I think one of the things that I saw is sort of those um, kinds of middle-class Jews and people you describe coming from that sort of background, um, you know, as they, you know, assimilated and went up, I think that there's a kind of story that gets told about their politics, which is that, you know, Jews took their liberal politics with them and that Jews, um, you know, like are, were more just and righteous than I think other white people. And I'm kind of curious as somebody who sort of grew up during what I think is sort of the zenith that time. I mean, you grew up with Chuck Schumer, who's now Senate Majority Leader, and, and, you know, Bernie Sanders is a few years ahead of you. And there's those famous images of him in the civil rights struggle. You know, to what extent, how do you relate to that kind of narrative? Uh, You ask a tough question because it's actually an involved answer to that question. Most of what's said about Jews in the civil rights movement, it's just pure mythology. Uh, I grew up in the lower, as I said, I I have to just correct you one point before I continue. Please. You say you grew up several generations past me, which of course you did, but it was not the same generation, it was not the same class anymore. My generation, which is probably your father's generation and mother's generation, they had made it. Their kids did not go to state universities, their kids went to solid Ivy League universities. They grew up <clears throat> quite comfortable. We were, ra- we were really not comfortable. We were lower middle class, ambitious, ambitious, but not yet comfortable. Mm-hmm. The lower middle class Jews were so horrifyingly racist. <clears throat> you, It's hard to believe now. Part of it may have been, you know, we talked about it back then. It may have been because they were fresh out of Brownsville. Now, remember, the Jews from the beginning of the 20th century, say from 1900 to 1930, they were in ghetto areas, what you could call Jewish ghettos in the Lower East Side. So they were the, they were the last ones out before African-Americans blocks moved in. The racism in my neighborhood it was so thick. Mm-hmm. Mine was the only family I knew. Remember, my family is not a typical American Jewish family. We, we were called, my parents were called the Greenhorns. 
That means they came over from Europe. They didn't. Yeah. They weren't ripe yet. Yeah, yeah. The Greenhorns and everybody hated them. My parents, because they were so un-American, un-Americanized. Yeah. Have no desire to become American. <laughs> they did not uh, have a high regard for American life. But let's just put that aside. So in every other home I would go in, black people would be referred to either as Collins, as in C-U-L-L-I-D-S. Most often, they were referred to as Schwarzes, yep. the Yiddish slang for, it's not quite n but it's pretty close. And then in those families which didn't have the Lower East Side Yiddish background, they were just called n I give you an example. So probably the number two person in my class is um, Philip Pulaski. And he's now a top a top notch urologist. I think he's a urologist, but I could be mistaken. That classic he's... Jewish profession. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> because it's the second highest paying doctor after mm -hmm. plastic surgeon is urologist. So maids, what we called back then maids, cleaning women, they would come yeah, in yeah. the neighborhood during the day. And we had a private bus line because the sitting bus line didn't go through our neighborhood. It was called the Pioneer Bus. And the maids would leave at 5 o'clock. The workday is over. Mm -hmm. And the five, Philip Pulaski used to call that 5 o'clock bus. He called it the N Express. Yeah. Philip Roth? That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> when a black person would just walk in the neighborhood, just walk in the neighborhood, don't ask me why, how he or she ended up. It wasn't, no, it wasn't she, because the she, everyone just assumed were the quote-unquote mates. If a black male walked in, we had a civic association, had a private um, uh, police, a private police. Immediately, the neighbors would alert the civic association, here's the black person walking, and the Civic Association police is following him, following him. Couldn't let a black person in our neighborhood. If you want to understand the real Jews of that era, not the fakery about, oh, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, and you know, Rabbi mm -hmm. Heschel, you know, the March on Washington. The Jewish, uh, one of the main, not the only, but one of the main Jewish professions, prof professions was teachers. The teachers' union was headed by Albert Schenker. Now, what happened in New York was, for my group, for my uh, community, the schools worked. In black communities, the schools didn't work. So initially, they tried what was called busing, bringing mm -hmm. in black people to white schools and white. It was really. One way. It was black kids coming into <laughs> white schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our, uh, our communities, I don't include my parents. I'm not going to make them out to be saints, but they were cut from, they were not American. They exactly. were European. They passed through the Nazi Holocaust. They had their own worldview, and it was not your typical Jewish worldview, American Jewish worldview. So um, they tried the busing. And it was resisted, resisted, resisted. And then 
because of all the resistance to what was called back then integration, a new movement arose for community control, which mm -hmm. is to say, our schools don't work. You don't want our students, then let's us, let us figure out how to make our schools work. It was the natural conclusion. If you don't want integration, if you don't want our kids, and our kids are failing, then let us be in charge of our kids and figure out how to get them to succeed. And the teachers' union did not like that. And the teachers' union did not like that. The teachers' union then went on a very bitter strike. You'll be surprised. Remember, we are ordinary kids, very studious, very ambitious. It was a 1968 uh, teacher strike. And the, the person who headed it was Albert Schenker. Schenker was a complete monster, just a complete monster. And the union was predominantly Jewish. That was a, mm -hmm. a Jewish profession, teachers. The strike went on September, no school. October, no school. November, no school. The strike lasted three months. It was very bitter very bitter. And then all the, so to, so to speak, the hatred which was in the shadows mm -hmm. in, between Jews and blacks, it came out with a, vi with, with a viciousness. Now, it wasn't the, 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 the strike just made it visible what was going on. I remember, I know you couldn't even imagine these things, but I have a vivid memory. One of my best friends, Richard Horn. Mm -hmm. I was fifth grade, sixth grade. I remember we're down in the basement. His mother's there, his father's there, and neighbors are there. And they love to bait me because I was the, in nowadays terms, the politically correct liberal. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they love to bait me. And they would say, you know all black people on welfare own Cadillacs. You know, black people, all black people on welfare own Cadillacs. Then in 1968 or 69, I can't remember, there was this guy named Arthur Jensen. And Arthur Jensen taught at Harvard. And he came out with a very famous article in Harvard Educational Review in which he claimed black people are intellectually inferior genetically. Okay? So then Richard's mother, who, by the way, she had a master's degree which was very unusual for anyone back then. And she was a woman and she taught, she was a teacher. Mm -hmm. She'd say, look what Harvard Educational Review says. That black people are inferior. So who are you to say they're not, you know? Then I had a friend, Ellen Schoenfeld. I'm sitting on her stoop. I'm arguing with her brother, Richard. You know what, Richard, we're arguing about? I mean, it's like kind of surreal now. Richard is saying, should be put in gas chambers. Jesus. <laughs> Which was funny considering where my parents ended up. Um, my parents' families ended up. Of course, yeah. All should be put in gas chambers. That was the attitude. Now there's all this revision about revisionism about how the Jews and the blacks got along so well. It's all crap. You're not going to you know, so long as I live, which is not to eternity, and very short of eternity, by the way, uh, you're not going to play that game with me. 
Where do you think that revisionism comes from? Uh, well, because Jews love to think that they're beautiful. <laughs> they love to think they're perfect. Yeah. It was very interesting to watch because I had a very good friend. I don't want to ever say a bad word about her because she just passed away from cancer, as did my friend Mark, uh, Franz Schumer's boyfriend. Sorry to hear that. They both died last year from cancer. Um, but Maxine was her name. Very smart. I liked her a lot. She was my high school sweetheart. And 90% of the reason I liked her was because she's just very smart. Um, and um, she was also pretty, but she was very smart. Never hurts. And Maxine did not like black people. She was not as virulent as others because it was so gauche, so gross. But she didn't like black people. She didn't like them for a different reason, kind of. She was very smart, very competitive, and she was one of these people that uh, you have to earn everything you, you gain. And she felt black people were getting benefits because of, you know, it was the early years, the very early. It wasn't yet a fir uh, the Baki case, the famous affirmative action case, comes in 74, I think. Uh, so it's just a few years, but already it began this giving certain entitlements to black people to compensate for um, a situation which was untenable. Everything was all, every institution, you go back, go back and watch a situation comedy from the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Go back and watch a, a dance show like the American Bandstand. Everything is white. Yeah. You, you just can't believe it. If you go on YouTube, and I mean, I cringe now when I look at what, what those programs look like. Everything looked like a, some version of the Ku Klux Klan meeting. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So there was an effort made to try to shake this up a little. And Maxine didn't like that. And anyhow, because she wanted, you have to earn it. You know, it was the lower middle class mentality. You're struggling. You're fighting. You know, grade point average. We didn't calculate grade point average like 96, 95. That's not how we calculate we calculate 96.4.7, Yes, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. You understand? That's the way we work. Fran Schumer, she was competing with Virginia DiMario to be the top female student in the class. It came down to the hundredth decimal point. <laughs> no, it's true. I'm sure. Fran, got, Fran came in first, even though she was much smarter than Virginia, but in terms of grade point average, it came down to the hundredth point. That's the way we were. Yeah. <laughs> Dear Christ. Maxine didn't like it that anybody got any, so to speak, freebies. Yeah, 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 yeah. The reason I mentioned her, it was very interesting to me to watch. Maxine ended up marrying an Israeli. Hmm. And she moved to Israel. And we had a conversation, it was 1982. And she started to refer to the Arab Bushum, Arab Bushum, which is like the Arab names. It's the uh, Hebrew. Yeah, the Hebrew slur. Yes. And I thought to myself, how easily Maxine made the transition from hating black people to hating Arabs. Yeah. That's why it was so easy for American Jews to assimilate the post-June 67 ethic. 
Because for them, all of the Arabs were just a surrogate black people. Yeah. Same feelings they had for black people, they now uh, projected on Arabs. They never saw an Arab like growing up. The only Arab we ever saw was, um, oh, God, from Dr. Zhivago. Who is it? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know you. Omar, Omar or something. Omar I can't remember. Omar, Omar Sharif. That's the only Arab we ever heard of, Omar Sharif. But they so easily came to hate Arabs. Mm. And in my mind, the reason it was so easy is they just made the transition from black people to Arabs. You mentioned that your parents had a different worldview, though. You said it wasn't just that. I mean, you mentioned that it was part of it, you think, is because they weren't Americanized and they weren't interested in that kind of culture. Can you uh, do you want, can you explain their views a little bit? Look, my parents were weird birds. They were strange birds. Mm-hmm. I never understood it growing up because I didn't know there was anything odd about it. My parents, number one, they looked at the world through one lens, only one lens, the Nazi Holocaust. Yeah. Nothing else happened. They didn't care. They cared about the world. They cared about politics, but only through the lens of the Nazi Holocaust. So the first thing to say about my parents is they would not brook any criticism, any whatsoever of Joseph Stalin. Yeah. Nothing. Hmm. Anything you said critical of Stalin, the first thing they would say is traitor. You're a traitor. Yes. Because from their point of view, which is factually correct, the Red Army defeated the Nazis. Right. That's all they cared about. I never tried. First of all, I never even knew it was strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will be fair is that there there were a number of Jews in New York City who would not say a bad word about Stalin. (laughs) I I would go to high school, in grade school, forget high school, grade school, junior high school. I'm going to be defending Stalin. And, you know, I'm sure, first of all, for most kids in the class, they didn't even know who the hell Stalin was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but in my house, that was table talk. <laughs> right, right, right. It was a strange house. It was a strange house. That Stalin was table talk. And so um, they were very loyal to the Soviet Union. They were not communists. Yeah. They only cared about the Soviet Union because it defeated the Nazis. And because they had a genuine um, affection for the Russian people because they felt the Russian people understood war. Mm-hmm. And that was something very important to my parents, that somebody could understand the suffering that they mm-hmm. endured. Yeah. And what really, what separated the Russian experience from the Jewish experience in the war was really just a hair's breadth. Absolutely. The Russians lost, you know, the estimates vary, but you could say between 20 and 30 million people. It was very, for me, it was a a real revelation, uh, not epiphany, but a revelation when I was in uh, seventh grade. So we're studying world history and there's a bar graph. And the bar graph is deaths during World War II. So the first bar, of course, is the United States, 200,000 Americans killed. Then the next bar is the UK, uh, 400,000 British killed. 
The next bar is Russia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Million. I mean, they lose more in one battle than we lost in the entire war. Correct. Just in the battle of, of Leningrad. Yeah. Last yeah. of the year, a million people were killed. That was more battle of Leningrad than, or the siege of Leningrad, than all the American and British deaths doubled. came out of this milieu and you became a Maoist. Um, my parents were very anti-war. Uh-huh. Uh, fanatically anti-war. Uh, you, you can't understand because it's something that will die with me, which kind of, you know, in some way it saddens me. But to understand that ethic, that mentality, that, uh, that emotional burden. When we used to watch the Vietnam War, on TV at night, in the news. And they mm -hmm. would have, the news always began with the Vietnam War, and then they would have some horrific scene from Vietnam. Immediately as the image of the war came up on the TV screen, my mother would turn her head like this, hold up her hand, and say, tell me when it's over. Yeah. Now my mother was not a drama queen, not at all, not at all. She didn't play to any crowd. But she physically could not look at it. She physically could not look at it. And that was the, the ethos mm -hmm. that I grew up with. Though I then became, as you say, I became a Maoist, so I had to support armed struggle and the dictatorship of the proletariat. One thing that made being a Maoist a little bit easier for me was... Um, couldn't read Chinese. China was very pro-Stalin. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. 70% good, 30% bad, according to them. Exactly. So at least that part came easy to me. Of course, as you just said correctly, the Chinese position was 70% good, 30% bad. My mother and father's position was 100% good. And if you think there's anything bad, you're a traitor. <laughs> well, that's your parents, of course, were followers of Enver Hoxha then. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> no, they didn't know. I'm I just kidding. No, well, maybe they didn't know. No, they didn't know. <laughs> so, so, so you, so you get onto college at this point, and can you tell us a little bit about kind of where that led you? Well, college was a, I can't say it was an intellectually satisfying period in my life because I was <laughs> such a, I was so dogmatic. Uh, How do you mean? What do I mean? Okay. Here would be typical courses I would take in a, in a semester. Yeah. Marx won, Engels won, Marx and Engels won, Engels and Marx won, Marx, Engels, Lenin won. Semester two, Marx two, Engels two, <laughs> Marx. Yeah, no, I agree. Not enough Lenin. Exactly. Yeah, there's a dearth of Lenin there. I admire your commitment to studying uh, history, but you're lacking in theory, pal. <laughs> oh, it was pure, pure distilled insanity. Um, do I regret it? Yeah, actually, I do. 
<laughs> because I, I, I was a moron. I mean, I worked very hard. I worked very hard. I'm Jewish at the, at the end of the day and at the beginning of the day and probably most of the day I'm Jewish. Yeah. And so I studied very hard. I graduated in three years and the grade point average was in a scale of four. I graduated with a 3.96. Jesus Christ. I calculated 100, but 3.96. <laughs> so I worked hard, but I was totally, we were young. You know that song, Those Were the Days, My Friend, We Thought They'd Never End. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we'd sing and dance. For, we'd, we'd, we'd fight and, and never lose. lose. Uh -huh. But we, we were, were young, young and sure to have our way. And that's how we were, that's how I was. We would fight and never lose. We were sure to have our way. I thought the revolution was coming. Mm -hmm. I was going to be a revolutionary. I was going to be in the vanguard party. Um, and so in one way I, I grew as I set my, I set my trajectory in life in those years, and I never looked back. Nothing really changed. Mm -hmm. I knew what I was going to do with my life. There was no possibility I would ever sell out. I knew that about myself. I was much more, I was, I think, much more sincere in my beliefs because for me it was kind of a, vindication of my parents suffering uh, to try mm. to create a world that was an alternative to the world that had uh, exterminated a large part of my parents family and destroyed yeah. them for life they were my parents were damaged goods and uh, I wanted I was very committed to um, changing the world you know you can have abstract theoretical beliefs but a lot of times however abstract and theoretical they are not always not always but often enough they come back to something very personal if you read for example lenin why did lenin become a or a, or, or a revolutionary. Why did he become a revolutionary? I, I studied Lenin closely. I, I admit I've not read the recent literature on him, but there was a time when his collected works came to 55 volumes. I read 20 of them cover to cover. And you can't help, you know, he came from a privileged background. He was like eighth grade grade eight nobility, uh, you can't help but feel that his hatred for the capitalist system came from the fact that his brother was killed by the Tsar. His brother was a revolutionary, was captured mm -hmm. and executed. Hanged, yeah. And even though in most biographies that's not highlighted, I kind of think that's what drove him. Other people are complete enigmas. Probably the most enigmatic and in many ways the most, I think, interesting figure in the history of 
radical socialism is Rosa Luxemburg. Mm. Mm. Now, Rosa was a middle class Jewish, of course, Polish. That's right. Woman. Yes. Mm-hmm. And she was a cripple. She had a hip defect. Yes. Yeah. So this Polish Jewish female middle class cripple ends up becoming the leader of the radical wing of the German Workers Party. How how did that happen? How did that happen? You know, a person like her really she really is an enigma. Mm. And there were things about her, just to give you one example. First of all, she she was like a force of nature. She loved life. Yeah, yeah. I read her letters. She would pick something that sort of intrigued her, botany, geology, and then she would read up on everything there is on the subject. She's not one of these monomaniacal leftists. Very cultured, very literary, and had scrap art, mm-hmm. botany, geology. Not sure geology. I forgot what the, 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 the discipline was. In any event, so her best friend is Clara Zetkin. Yes. And Clara Zetkin has a son, Kostya. Kostya yes, I'm familiar with this story. <laughs> is Rosa's lover. Yeah. Kostya is 20 years younger than Rosa. She is her best friend's son. And that's her lover. Very strange. Could you imagine the conversation between Clara and Rosa? I mean, it must have been just so strange. Like, so tell me, Rosa. How is Kostya in bed? Yeah, exactly, exactly. What are you guys talking? You guys talk about me? You're not talking about me, are you? <laughs> well, in any case, she was kind of an enigmatic figure. I I have a lot of friends who they didn't turn out radical. They were radical when they became my friends. And they, they stood the course. They're still where they were when I met them. And uh, quite a few of them I can't quite figure out. But in my case, the apple did not fall far from the trees. I know that my commitment came from the horrific suffering that my parents endured to the last breath of their life. And so I knew I would stay the course. You know, a lot of times parents would say, ah, you know, when I'm 16 years old, my friends, ah, Norman, he'll grow out of it. It's a phase. It's a phase. No, it wasn't a phase. Yeah, you never grew out of it, which is <laughs> I, I, I. Well, I will say no. I, I will say, as a Jew from New York, mm-hmm. who was into you know radical politics, or at least you know politics outside the norm in his youth. And no, no pun intended there. Um, quite a lot of Jewish people who were into, let's say, uh, not so mainstream politics from New York City. In fact, not only abandoned those politics, but took them to the other side. Oh of yeah, course, you know, they were they were fakes, you know. When we were in, in college, so we all had our little sex. There were the Stalinists, the Maoists, the Trotskyists, the anarchists. 
The, the most radical were supposed to be the Spartacists, the Trotskyists. <laughs> oh yeah. yes, okay. they're still they're still around. They used to come to our, they used to come to our our we 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 did a union drive here. I worked at a uh, a brewery in San Francisco. We organized a union, and Spartacists would come to our union rallies, like when we were going to vote, and denounce us to ourselves at the rally that we organized <laughs> to join a union. It, it was I I you got I got to admit. It takes some verbs. They they would always call me petty bourgeois. bourgeois. So the head of the Spartacist Youth League was a guy a guy like named Sam Isakaroff. Sam Isakaroff. Now he's a right wing law professor at NYU. That's the Sparts for you. So whenever I would talk in Israel Palestine, I didn't call for workers' revolution in the Middle East. Um they would, you know, come and raise their hand. We have to have socialist revolution from, uh, or in the whole Middle East. And I'm a petty bourgeois. I said, look, don't give me the petty bourgeois. You're going to end up a banker. <laughs> I know your type. Statistically. Yeah, so I, I, I can't say I learned a lot in college, but I set myself on my life's course. And in that respect, it was, um, it was uh, a wonderful time. So when you were sort of, you know, like at this juncture and you're beginning your path of scholarship that would, you know. Like, I didn't like have any path of scholarship then. <laughs> well, then what was well, it then? Well, allow us, allow, allow us. Grant, grant us this characterization. I, I, I was a complete imbecile. Um, <laughs> well, so as I find then, as an imbecile stumbling in the dark toward, toward the light, <laughs> um, uh, like us all in some form or another. Uh, I'm not. I want to say I, I'm proudly going to remain an imbecile. <laughs> Hopefully, short uh, to all of our benefit. Uh, By the way, career. you know you you work for Jewish. You work. You you've written for Jewish currents. I knew the old Jewish currents, mm. and the old Jewish currents was a very interesting phenomenon because they were all ex-Stalinists. Yes, they were complete apologists for the Soviet Union. When Khrushchev's speech came out. They all withdrew from the Communist Party, but they had the same mentality. And they just switched all of their loyalties from Mother Russia to Mother Israel. And they became these staunch defenders of Israel. I had unpleasant exchanges with them. Though I have to tell you, the the editor was a guy named Mara Shapis. Yes, uh, yes, I know who he is. And there was... On the editorial board, people like Annette Rubinstein, they were so smart. They were smart and they were committed and they had to respect that. But they could never get that Communist Party mentality out of their head. They just switched it to Israel. And so they wouldn't brook serious criticism of Israel. I remember I was very close for a period of my life, about 30 years, I was very close to Professor Chomsky. Mm. And they hated Chomsky. They hated Chomsky. Well, 
in the long run, who, whose critique holds up? Wasn't mm-hmm. Jewish current? Who was Chomsky? If you go back and read Chomsky's earliest books, like Peace in the Middle East, which he writes in night, which is a collection of essays in 1974, it comes out. You know what? It still holds up. Correct. He's he 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 wins that debate. When you were at this point after college and you're sort of, you know, like beginning, I mean, basically, I'm kind of curious how you began the path of scholarship at whichever point you found the light toward addressing and critiquing from time immemorial. Um, What happened? How did that journey take place? Well, that journey took place. Basically, I worked for a year in a radical Maoist newspaper called The Guardian. Mm -hmm. Um, And... I was always the rebel because I didn't trust orthodoxy in general. Also, it's 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 right to rebel. Don't ask Norm. me to reconcile my fanaticism with my uh, doubts about orthodoxy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I no, I understand. I remember Believe I used me. to go to the Guardian newspaper, which was fanatically Maoist, and I would be reading Trotsky's. Um, Trotsky and Literature and Art, or Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution. You know, doing that is like reading Malcolm X in the Ku Klux Klan meeting. You know what I mean? You're not supposed to do that. But that was me. In any event, uh, after working at the Radical Newspaper, The Guardian, I went to graduate school at Princeton. Uh, complete disaster. Uh, But then uh, the main intervening event when I was in graduate school was Mao Zedong's death. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, I knew Mao Zedong was going to die because as much as Mao Mao Zedong lived like him, there to struggle, there to win. Mm -hmm. And red in the east rises the sun, China's brought forth from Mao Zedong. For all of that, we knew. It was it was finite. Yes. And to that extent we were historical materials. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say, in defiance of historical materialism, even though the guy was old, he could still swim like a much younger man. So I wouldn't blame you. You if know, he was I old. think the swimming was true. That's what I read. I don't know. Oh, it's no, I believe me, Norman, I have investigated the swimming. Yeah, I think it was a, true. An embarrassing amount. It is true. If by all accounts it's true. What, that he could swim really well? He could so swim, he swim like 12 revolution, miles. When he was already quite old, uh, he apparently broke some record for swimming in the Yangtze yeah. River. Don't ask after, me. After having not been seen in public for like a year, he came out, the first thing he did was jump in and literally break China's record it. for swimming in this I river. Believe I believe mean, it. You know, Until somebody proves it otherwise. Let me tell you, let me tell you, I, the man... Man after my own heart. A little bit of a showman there. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Must have been invi- advised by the Kaifeng Jews there. The, so Mao Zedong the dies. Jews they got. Yeah. Yeah. And that I expected, of course. But what I didn't expect was within, I guess, another few weeks. I can't remember now exactly how many weeks. What was called the Gang of Four was overthrown. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And believe it or not, I can even still remember their names from back then. Zhang Jing, Zhang Zhongzhao, yep. Yao Wenyuan, and 
Yao Wan Yuan, Chang Ching, Chang Jun Xiao, and I can't remember the fourth. Um, it'll come to me. And then, of course, there's a shock. This guy, Hua Guofeng, comes to power. Within a few more months, he's displaced by Deng Xiaoping. And then mm. quickly, everything is overturned. Yep. And um, I remember I would occasionally look at quote-unquote bourgeois periodicals. And they would say things like, well, when Mao dies, Zhang Jingzhou, Zhang Jing, Yao Wenyuan, and Wang Kongwen, and Wang Kongwen, and Wang Kongwen, they're all going to be eliminated. Mm -hmm. And the moderates are going to come to power. And I'd say, oh, that's all bourgeois bullshit. You don't understand the revolution. You don't understand Maoism. Well, it was very sobering. They got all the names right. They got <laughs> everything right. I was an idiot. I was an imbecile. And um, I was bedridden for three, three weeks. Mm. And it wasn't, believe me, the hard part was not being wrong. Being wrong was, of course, shattering. But much more shattering was I had made a fool of myself. Yeah. I wasn't just a Maoist. I was a flagrant Maoist. Mm -hmm. I would ridicule anyone who had any doubts about Maoism. I remember I had a friend, Roy Friedman, and he said to me, ah, Norman, by the time you get to China, there's going to be a McDonald's at the Great Wall. And uh, that's such bullshit. Well, guess what? There was a McDonald's at the Great Wall before I got to China. Well, Norman, if it makes you feel any better, uh, I'm still like that, and it's 2021. <laughs> so, no matter how stupid you think you were, I am leagues dumber in right now. It was a mortifying experience for me, and as I said, I was bedridden for three weeks. I studied with the most famous Maoist intellectual of the time. There were two, really. In the United States, it was Paul Sweezy, who mm -hmm. was the editor of Monthly Review. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in Paris, it was Charles Bettelheim. And I was very close to Sweezy. I love him. He was just a wonderful human being. Brilliant and just a really nice guy. And then I went to study with Charles Bettelheim in Paris. And I was told when everything was overthrown in, in uh, China, everything was reversed. He, too, had to be hospitalized over what happened. The embarrassment, the humiliation. Mm -hmm. And then I wasn't going to be a fool again. So I looked around. I was pretty lost. I was astray. I didn't finish Princeton at the time because I couldn't think of a thesis topic. I was going to do a thesis on the transition, what was called back then, the theory of the transition to socialism. Mm -hmm. But now I didn't think socialism was going to be transit transited to anymore after what happened in China. And 
eventually, I um, guess it was 1975 or six, I read, uh, there was this two-volume work put out by Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky on the Vietnam War and other U.S. interventions. And I became enamored of Chomsky, not just because of his sheer brilliance. I liked the method. The method was, or seemed to be, ideology-free. And it was just give me the facts and let's reason through the facts and let's see where that leads us. That's how Chomsky's method appeared to me. And I had at this point soured on ideology because of my own personal experience of ideology having blinded me to some pretty obvious facts, or at least discernible facts, that I refused to see. So now I was going to look for some kind of ideologically free uh, way of apprehending the world. And I start to read Chomsky closely, very closely. And um, the next major event was June 82, Israel invades Lebanon. Mm. Uh, very murderous invasion. The estimates are the war, the Israeli attack lasted from June 5th till September 82. The estimates are between 15 and 20,000 Lebanese and Palestinians were killed, overwhelmingly, of course, civilians. And the Sabra and Shatila massacres. Sabra and Shatila comes at the very end of the war. It wasn't really a war, it was an invasion. That comes very end at the end. And it was many, you know, in many ways it was just kind of a blip on the screen because the estimates are between one and two thousand people were killed in the camps. But overall that could be just about one tenth of the total people killed. In any event, I joined this group called JMO, Jews Against the Israeli Massacre in Lebanon. It was probably, apart from the mass, apart from the Israeli invasion itself, it was probably the second biggest disaster of the war. Our group, it was composed mostly of Jewish meshubas, mm -hmm. uh, complete lunatics, uh, losers, outliers, uh, certifiable, certifiably insane people. I can hear I can hear many of our Jewish listeners being like, "Oh, he's talking about me." <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and one of the key questions back then, we had to have what were called points of unity. What are our points of unity? <laughs> Believe me, I have been involved in working out those before. It is not a pleasant experience for anybody. So, you know, point of unity number one, we swore Palestinian self-determination. Point unity number two, U.S. out of the Middle East. Point of unity number three, Israel out of Lebanon. And then comes this key point. Where do we stand on Zionism? Where do we stand on Zionism? Well, I was the recalcitrant. I wasn't going to do if I might call it, 
of Maoism too. I'm not going to now go on the anti-Zionism bandwagon. First of all, because I didn't like being, I didn't like taking an ideological position anymore. I felt uncomfortable mm -hmm. after the Maoism phase. Secondly, I respect knowledge. I hadn't read anything on Zionism. I'm not going to take a position on something I don't know about. I'm not going through this blind fanatic phase again. I need to read about it. Though I want to be absolutely clear, I read everything there was to read about China. In fact, I taught, I taught a section on China as an undergraduate at my college. I knew yeah. more than any professor. Okay, I, don't, that, I take that back. I knew more, I knew enough, I knew enough to be assigned a section of the class, a section of the course to teach on China. So I always read. And I wasn't going to become a Zionist or an anti-Zionist unless I knew what the subject was about. Mm. So I started to read and read and read until I decided, hey, what the hell? I'm going to make this my doctoral dissertation. I told you I, I didn't finish because I yeah. couldn't think of a thesis topic. Mm. So that became my thesis topic. And what happened was the following. It's 1984. I had finished writing my doctoral dissertation, the draft, the mm -hmm. final draft. It was done. I was just about to submit it when I walk into what was called back then Harper and Row Bookstore, the publisher Harper and Row. Now I think it's called Harper's. Yeah. I walk into their bookstore, and I see on the shelf this volume called From Time Immemorial, uh, The History of the Arab-Israeli Conflict. I forgot the subtitle now. Yeah, yeah. And I turn it around to see the blurbs, and had a very impressive roster of blurbs from top people. And they say, this history, this book is going to change our understanding of the whole Arab-Israeli conflict. This book is a milestone. And it said everything we know about the conflict, this book proves it's not true. And to tell you the truth, at that moment it got seized with trepidation. Uh -huh. I thought, uh-oh, am I doing a Maoism too now? That <laughs> yes, no. the Palestinians are all fake? Everything yeah. Israel said is true? Because yeah. the main thesis of the book was Palestine was empty when the mm -hmm. Jews came. The Jewish settlers built up Palestine made it economically thrive. Made the desert bloom. Right. And then all the Arabs from neighboring countries surreptitiously entered Palestine because of the new economic opportunities created by the Jews, and they pretended to be Palestinian. 
like that they just like like the thesis was that a bunch of Palestinians, that people who had been indigenous to the land for you know thousands of years, had actually just like you know picked up their belongings and come overnight from Jordan in the beginning of the 20th century mm. because the Jews had done such a good job. Yes, that was the thesis. This was a thesis taken seriously by like everyone. Like I mean, it was it was this book was taken. It was it was. I mean, who was who was celebrating this book? Well, you wouldn't know the people now because we're talking about 40 years ago. But some of them you would know. There was Lucy DeWittowich. Uh, an eminent Jewish historian uh, from the right. Uh, there was Eli Wiesel. Sure. Yeah. There was... Um, he was the elevator sexual harasser guy, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it was elevator or thing, but I mean, he, yeah, he's a he's a bad writer and a right wing fanatic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm familiar. I'm familiar with. Is him. that your original copy of the book? Yes. Holy shit! Could you hold that up to the camera? Sorry, I, I would love to. It's a museum item now. Oh my gosh! My God! Love it. Yeah. Um, there was Barbara Tuckman, who was a renowned historian at the time. There was uh, Saul Bellow, the Nobel laureate in sure. literature. Uh huh. I read a couple of his books. So I got really scared that maybe this is true, and I just had the wool pulled over my eyes a second time. <laughs> that this was like my Maoism. Mm -hmm. What happened was when the book came out, the people of the left if we can call it that. And they all just dismissed it as, oh, that's Zionist propaganda. Ignore yeah. it. It's Zionist propaganda. But I remembered when I looked at that article that said, Jiang Jing, Yao Wenyuan, Wang Hongwen, and Zhang Zhongzhao, they're uh -huh. all going to be eliminated after Mao dies. And I said, oh, that's just bourgeois propaganda. I remember thinking, this sounds like me. And they were saying, oh, that's just Zionist propaganda. Yeah. And I thought, maybe what she's saying is true. So I sat down. I was working in a after-school program for kids in an inner-city community. I would, in the morning, go to the library. It was after school. It was from 2 to 6. I would go in the morning to the library. And after work, I would go to the library. And I started to check through the footnotes. And the footnotes, according to Peters, I never actually counted. There were 1,800 and 1,852 footnotes. And let's see. In the book, they stretch from pages 443 to... I yeah, I mean, for, for listeners who are, who are maybe not familiar with uh, Mr. F uh, Finkelstein's work, intimately, he is the footnote sniper. Yeah. Like, don't try to trip <laughs> him up on the footnotes. It stretches 443 to 563, 120 uh -huh. pages of footnotes. And I start to go through it one by one by one by one. I want to know if this is true. Mm -hmm. Once bitten, twice shy. I'm not going to be humiliated again. 
I told you the worst part of what happened with my Maoism is not that I was wrong, but I had made a complete fool of myself. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't going to be made the fool of a second time. God, I wish I could have so When Professor Said said, ah, it's bourgeois propaganda, I wasn't ready to accept that. I wanted to know for myself. And then the book contains an appendix which corresponds to a couple of textual chapters which attempts to prove dem demographically her thesis. Mm -hmm. that the place was empty. Mm -hmm. The demographic study in the book it comes with a blur, comes with a page certifying the findings by a fellow named, fellow named Philip Hauser, who uh -huh. was the head of population studies at the University of Chicago. It's an ominous string of words right there, considering what University of Chicago is known for. That, that is a serious pedigree. It's a serious credential. Yeah. And what did I know about demography? He headed up the Population Research Center at the University of Chicago. So there was this demographic study, which corresponded to textual chapters that explained the study. I came home. I didn't believe then. I still don't believe in any mechanical devices. I took out my pad. I took out my pencil. And every night, I'd lie down in bed. I lived in this small, cavernous, Dostoevsky-like apartment. Wait, so how is it small and cavernous? Well, I meant like dark. <laughs> like dead. Yeah, like, okay. Uh, oh, like, okay. Oh, like, yeah, 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 like, yeah, 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 yeah. Cave-like. Well, perfect for, for, for an academic, you know? <laughs> uh, the mice and the cockroaches were not perfect. <laughs> mm -hmm. Traditional allies of the Jewish people. Well, at least not one who grew up in the Jewish home. <laughs> yes. And every night, I'm calculating, I'm calculating, I'm calculating. I'm going to understand this. I'm going to understand this. I had gone through this already when I read for the first time when I was 18, Marx's Capital. I'm yeah. going to understand this. And I'm flipping the pages and flipping the pages and flipping the pages and flipping the pages. And then one night, it was like 1 a.m. And I got this chill down my spine. I feel it now. I feel it now. I got this chill. I do too, brother. And I said, oh, my God. That number is a fake. <laughs> that number is a fake. I'm sure. I'm sure of it. It was like, oh, my God. I remember later when I told the story to Paul Sweezy, he said to me, Norm, for a scholar, there's nothing like that eureka moment. And I had that eureka moment. I got up from my bed. My heart is palpitating. And I start walking, pacing my apartment back and forth, back and forth. And I'm saying, I did it. I did it. I did it. I found the hoax. It was unbelievable that moment. I cannot tell you what that was like. 
And then mm. what do I do? It's 1 a.m. What do I do? <laughs> well, I'm Jewish. I called my mother. <laughs> <laughs> I said, did you wake her up? I said, mom, I did it. I did it. I did it. He said, Norm, I'm so proud of you. What did you do? <laughs> you, you know, at one o'clock in the morning, I'm not going to explain to her how I proved the demographic study. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, so there's this book called Time in the Morning. <laughs> Norman, would you get a job already? <laughs> <laughs> a real job. <laughs> well, little did she know. <laughs> this definitely turned into something. So, and I didn't want to leave off with that because I have to get to work tonight. But that was like the beginning of a whole new chapter in my life. What happened was I wrote up my findings I sent out my findings to 25 people. Uh, it was obviously, you know, long before computers and email. You put it in, you, you Xerox it, you put it in an envelope. And of the 25 people I sent it, I sent it out to people who would normally be interested in something like mm -hmm. that. Uh, and Edward Said, uh, you know, people, prominent people involved in Israel-Palestine question. And one morning, it was a Saturday morning, I'm pretty sure, I get a call. And um, the person says, is this Norman Finkelstein? I said, yeah. He said, well, my name is Noam Chomsky. I was totally bewildered. He said, I read what you wrote. And it sounds plausible. And I think you should continue researching because you'll probably find there's more to what you already found. And, um, and that began a whole new chapter in my life where I became no longer a disciple of Chairman Mao, but I became a disciple of Chairman Noam. <laughs> and it had a... After my parents, it was the most decisive relationship of my life. And um, I wasn't a groupie. I was old school. You have yeah. to earn your relationship to him. And earning it meant to maintain his standards of, beyond all else, his standards of productivity. Mm -hmm. I had to work hard. And I have to be good at what I did um, to earn his, I wouldn't say respect. I don't think he ever respected me. And I don't think that's a big problem for me. Chomsky operates in a totally different level. And he, um, he respects two things. First of all, he does respect personal sacrifice. If you made personal sacrifice for a cause, he respects it. And that part of it, he respected me, I think. Well, you certainly, certainly fulfilled that criterion. And the other thing is he respects math and science. 
he's a he he considers himself a scientist, and for him, what what's called the social studies, it doesn't have any intellectual content. Mm. You know, I remember once <laughs> I had a conversation with him. I said, you know, um, I'm reading this stuff on Zionism. I'm reading all of this, all these theories and literature. I said, it, it doesn't feel like it has any intellectual depth. I said, well, what do you think? And he said to me, well, let's start from the beginning. I don't think anything in the social sciences has any intellectual depth. <laughs> Which, of course, made me feel terrific. I would agree with you. Yeah, I, I don't know I, much about it, but, I, you know, I'm, I, it's, uh, I'm, a, I'm a feelings guy. <laughs> so are the social sciences, actually. I, I became, I worked very hard. I worked very hard. I upheld my principles. I would never have been first rank because I don't have the natural gifts for first rank. Um, but I certainly would not have ended up how I ended up, which is I never had a job. It's a very sobering yeah. fact. I'm 67 now. I never, was, I never had a job. I worked as an adjunct. I worked part-time. Uh, only five years, nine, two, 2001 to 2006, I earned $50,000 a year for, for five years. After 2007, I never worked again. Not even adjunct, nobody, nothing. I mean, I literally, and I'm not asking for pity, I'm just describing facts. Yeah. I literally could not volunteer in a high school. I went back to my high school, James Madison, and I said, look, I'll volunteer, because I felt like being in a classroom. I missed it. No. Nothing. No. Why is that? Because I was blacklisted, and there was no way... I don't think people understand. Okay, I don't want to say people don't understand. That's all. It's an obnoxious expression. You have to experience it to see what happens. Yeah. So I had become known as a Holocaust denier. That was one of the things they would hurl at me. Well, we will be back with part two this week. Yeah, yeah. Fingers fucking crossed. There's no technical <laughs> difficulties or anything. But yeah, that was. Um, I, I I very much enjoyed conducting that interview. Or or really, I I, I base what I did was essentially just interrupt Norman Finkelstein with uh, stupid things I, I was thinking. But yeah. but I, I consider it conducting in a way. It's hard not to want to chime in because he's so cozy. Yeah, cozy guy. Very cozy. Yeah, very friendly. Like it was very. I felt like he gave. He it was a very warm, warm Mm, feeling that I got listening to him. I I do want to say, listeners, he literally brought out the original his copy of From Time Immemorial. Yeah, it had like all these like post it sticking out of it. It was like totally worn, unreal. Um, Yeah, totally. He wasn't lying when he called it a museum piece either. I'll be bidding on it. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I'll be bidding yeah. against Brace for it. 
Yeah, well, I'll, I'll probably hire some Chinese firms to do the, the – I never bid on anything on eBay, but I, I understand that you can bid a penny more than somebody using some sort of robot. And for our listeners who are new to Finkel lore, mm-hmm. they soon will come to understand just how important that copy of his book of that book is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and we'll 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 put a list of his uh, of books that he's written sort of in the description and stuff. Uh, I've been rereading the Holocaust industry uh, to to sort of get mm-hmm. ready for this, and uh, let me tell you, it's a good book. And he yeah. he writes like he talks too. I mean, the man is he is he's an intellectual. Yeah, and we'll get into all that stuff in the in the coming interview. Well, my name, unfortunately, is Brace Belden. I'm Liz. I'm Noah Colwyn. We are, of course, joined by Young Chomsky. I so you just Noam. do this now? You just do this now? I don't know, but I almost just said Noam Chomsky, Chomsky too, which is funny. <laughs> I know, yeah. Oh, before, oh, yeah. I think before, <laughs> he, did, he, he did ask our producer, uh, he was like, are you Young Chomsky? <laughs> or who that is was, Young that Chomsky? That was very yeah. cute. That was, oh, that that was, was very, very sweet. Yeah, yeah, it was very sweet. That was like, oh, maybe there's a little connection there. Yeah. Oh, you should see you should see this little bastard smile right now. A very we'll toothy see. smile come from Young Chomsky. Well, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 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 B